You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I am Ross Kenyon, lead strategist at Nori, here with Christoph Jospe. Uh, it is a sunny day in Ballard, got lucky in the winter. Things are going well. We have a spring in our step this week, but we won't say anymore. <laughs> we'll have uh, a more Nori-centric episode to come, I'm sure. Christoph, introduce our guests. It is my pleasure to introduce a couple who are married. I think this is the first time we've had husband and wife. So maybe we'll just do no, at the same time. at the same time we've at had the husbands same. and wives on different podcast episodes. Right. Little do you know, podcast listeners, this is actually the reversing climate change slash marriage counseling on the air. Just <laughs> kidding. Reversing climate change podcast with the Costa de Beauregard. We have how, Ellen, how, do, you, how do you do? Is that good? And Raúl, it is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> Beauregard. It's like good luck or handsome. It's just it's such good luck. Good luck. It's such an amazing, like, we don't have good luck in English. There's no, like, Christoph, good luck. <laughs> good luck in Christoph. Yeah, no one's ever said that to you. So. Um, but I had coffee with Ellen, I think it was almost a year ago. She had was relatively fresh off the boat from Paris and looking to make some waves in the climate change space. She came from a very interesting background. I like getting to know people with interesting backgrounds because they clearly have a grasp on the complex systems that go into the energy transformations which are required to address climate change and some of the drivers to really make change happen more quickly. And it was clear that she's an entrepreneur who is going to latch on to ideas and make them happen. So we're always keen when we can bring people on like that. And also, she happens to be married to someone who seems to have a pretty good head on his shoulders and know about all sorts of things that happen at a company that maybe you've heard of called Amazon. And hopefully by the end of this episode, we'll tie it all together, how they're in this unique position to make something amazing happen. But Ellen and Raul, we like to start out with people's stories, sort of where they got to where they are today, which is sitting in the Nori office on a sunny day on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. So how about you go first? Thank you so much for the introduction. Well, we actually moved to Seattle in 2013. I was working for the French government in Paris before we, we moved. I was working on uh, climate change and energy. And we moved to Seattle with uh, Raoul's job. And At the time, I'm still working for Amazon. So we moved from Paris to Seattle with work. And we'll talk about Amazon later, I guess. So... I, like, as you said, like climate change has always been a very important topic with me. That's why after I finished my grad school, I decided to uh, start working on uh, on this and on carbon markets, then on energy. And so when we moved to Seattle, um, I was trying to think about uh, what I could do. Um, maybe I could uh, work on climate change and carbon markets. People told me, oh, you have to go to Olympia. And I was just like, um... Well, I just moved from uh, Paris to Seattle and I just want to spend some time with my husband. I don't want to be away from him during the whole week and only seeing him uh, during the weekend. So that was not an option. And I started to be involved in the startup community in, uh, in Seattle. 
And at some point, I read a study about traffic emissions and how 30% of uh, traffic emissions in city are due to people circling for parking. And so that just clicked. And that's uh, why I decided to start uh, Garage Hub. And we just got acquired in, in December. So uh, since then, I've been taking care of my kids and working on also some other climate-related projects. Wow, so we, your company was acquired then and you exited and you're no longer affiliated? Yes, correct. So that's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a big milestone in anyone's career. So how exactly did that work? We can, we'll go back to you, Ro. We're not forgetting you, but just explain. People are looking for parking spots, but you have some way for them to find it? So the way it worked was a little bit different from the parking app that we can find. So because of my specific background in climate change and because my focus was really on how do you reduce uh, those traffic emissions, our focus was twofold. Like the first was, okay, maybe we can have like more people using mass transit instead of like uh, driving uh, to the city. And uh, if you live uh, in the Puget Sound, like 90% of the parking rides are full by nine. And so people basically cannot find a space. And so they drive to Seattle. And so what we were doing is that we were trying to open parking spaces in uh, residential buildings close to parking rides, which are full. So people would just like park there and hop on the bus. So that was the primary focus of the of the company. Another way that could have happened down the road was how do you create some incentive for people when they have to take their car to drive smarter? So one way with the technology would have been to prioritize people carpooling because the technology we developed would have allowed that to know how many people are in the car. Or you can also say, well, those uh, parking space are in mark for electric car, for instance. So we developed the technology, but we didn't uh, manage to uh, get to this next level. So there's still a lot of uh, stuff that needs to be done in that field. That's so amazing. And I, I love just the creativity because normally when people care about the environment, their first instinct is to go for some policy solution, which is definitely, definitely works in some cases and it's the right fit for many. But I love it when people see a business opportunity and something like that that can actually be commercially viable for its own sake. And reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, that's and the sweet spot. Create create something amazing about it. I remember I was taking an Uber pool. So for people who haven't been living under a rock, that's basically a way to share a ride with someone else and reduce the cost. But if you sometimes want to start conversations with complete random strangers, you can. And it's I, also I do like, not care for that, though. I will, I will pay the premium to have the space. But, but I, I guess what I'm saying is it can work in the opposite direction is you pay less, you save less because it's fewer cars driving and you have this potentially great experience with this random encounter that you might not have otherwise had. Mm. And similarly, when it's talking about finding a parking spot more easily, people are, you're solving for their frustration. You're solving for like the reduced time, which is a real like angst. And so they're not even thinking about climate change, but they're doing these climate friendly activities. Is that a good way to kind of frame some of the opportunities here? Yes, I think so. I mean, what I uh, learned from my experience working, especially as a carbon market expert, and I was working and attending some uh, UNFCCC conferences. Sorry, what does that stand for? Oh, sorry, United Nations Framework, Frameworks on Climate Change Convention. So like the Paris conference is one of those uh, annual conferences under this United States framework. And I learned that you have to find incentive for people to change their behavior. And one of the biggest way for people to change their behavior is when you put a price on carbon one way or another, or if you uh, solve an issue that they have. So that's why it made uh, sense to me to try to find a better way to get 
people either out of their car, but providing them a parking space where they need it, which is by a transit hub, which uh, otherwise can really be a frustration, or by like creating incentive and uh, even like extra, and it's not something that we have been able to implement it, but like extra financial incentive by making it maybe like less costly for them if they are carpooling to access the garage or less expensive if they have an IV or an hybrid uh, vehicle. So I think that's also a way that you get people to change their behavior in a more subtle way and you get them on board. Yeah, it's like climate subversion. Raul, how about we pass it over to you? So you're obviously married to this climate expert. So you get dragged into this, but what's your story? Yeah, I mean, we, we met in Paris. And before I met Hélène, I was very aware of climate change. I had studied physics, and so the science of climate change makes complete sense to me. And I'd always made sense. But it was not a big thing. It was not um, something that was on my mind at all times. Meaning Hélène changed that. And, you know, she cared so much about the issue, and she was taking action, and she was working in that field that, you know, she changed my behavior. So, you know, through love, I basically embraced climate change cause and now it's something that's top of mind for me as well. That plus the very nice accent was the most romantic moment on the podcast we've had today. <laughs> very, very charming. And I'm curious, Raul, so you have a whole other view on behavior change because you happen to work at a company that is responsible for, what, 50% of all purchases online? Oh my God, is it that many? <laughs> so the thought of how to motivate people to do things, let's just take climate change out of it for a second. There's smart technology where ultimately, to be crass, Amazon wants people to click buy and not think twice. And you want to maximize for that clicking buy. How, if at all, does that mindset of motivating people's behaviors relate to thoughts around motivating people's behaviors to create an impact on climate? I think that's a great question. The you know successful products and companies, what they do is basically they identify a customer need or a pain point, and then they solve that pain point. And so, if you take shopping, Amazon has solved you know friction in finding the right product and getting the product delivered to you quickly. And this is a large enough pain point that the company has been successful at you know, driving this. And there are many layers, once you've identified the pain point, how you can improve on that process. And you know, Amazon is customer obsessed and is doing this you know, with more selection, you know, better prices, faster delivery, et cetera. And that's that mindset. I think for, for climate change, a good way to you know help everybody embrace the, you know the urgency and the need to change the behaviors is to highlight what is the pain point if we do not act now and it's it's difficult because with climate change we are starting to see some disruptions you know more fires in california even in washington state droughts and and um, climate events but most of the dramatic changes are backloaded into the future and so it is not an immediate pain point that you are solving. It's a pain point that's going to happen to our kids or to you when you're like 10, 20 years older. I think that is, the, to me, the big challenge about climate change is how do we make this future pain point obvious to everybody now so we can, we can act? You know, if, if the urgency is there and understood and shared, there, sh there will be no, no blockers for everybody to act. 
Yeah, we got, when was this, Chris? This is an ancient podcast, but the image I like for this is, do you ever see uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? And yeah. He like he goes under the <laughs> stone door and he goes back and grabs his hat right as it closes. I think like there is a tendency to wait. Like, how long can we wait before we need to dramatically change the world economy and all everything else? It's a great image. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Well, we're a software company. We're focused on climate change, which has been good for us attracting people like, I know Michael Leggett, who's been on the podcast before, our head of product. When he found out, he's like, oh, wow, I've been looking for a way to use my software chops and design chops for climate change. This is it. And there's also just not a lot else out there. Is there a good intersection between software and climate change that people aren't seeing? Are we going to see more companies similar to us come out? Do you have any sense of that? It's a tough one. I think there is an appetite from, I think, the people overall to like look for solutions that work for climate change and that do not involve dramatic, you know, behavior changes from themselves. And so the idea that, you know, science or technology can solve the problem for us is, is, is uh, very um, appealing. And if something works, guarantee that it's going to be highly successful and it's going to get a lot of traction if there's, if there's impact. But people also tend to, to wait for this thing to arrive and then everyone hates techno fixes and that yeah, sort of thing. I, yeah, I think we've been hearing that, you know, science can solve climate change and we should just invest more in R&D and continue, you know, polluting and uh, using fossil fuels and we'll be fine. We cannot do that, but it's part of the solution. It is tough to forecast what and when those changes will happen. But I think something that Nori is driving and other companies, large or small, there might be in the near future some changes. Right now, I don't know of you know large impacts that are happening through that. So before we started this podcast, Ellen, you were talking about some terms like mitigation, <laughs> adaptation, various broad, important terms that are oftentimes couched as climate change solutions. Can you help frame a little bit the solution space for us? And then where, if you were queen of the world and had your druthers of how you'd want to see solutions scaled quickly, like where, do, where does solutions need to happen? Oh, wow. Fix it for us on the air. <laughs> It's been a while since you brought out well, this device. I think that we actually have a lot of solutions that will lead you a long way toward a decarbonized uh, world. And I want to give a shout out to the uh, Drawdown Project. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with it. So basically, um, and just right now, I forgot the name of the uh person who is Paul, behind it. Paul Hawken. Yeah. I actually got to meet him in New York and he gave me a hug and he was like, I love Nori. <laughs> and he meant both, he loved what we were doing and he loves eating sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So um, if I remember it's right, I think the story be behind the Drawdown project was that in the early 2000, uh, Mr. Hawking was like asking people, okay, so if you have to give me a list of all the solutions that needs to be implemented to reduce our mission, where is this list? And so the people were saying like, well, I can like tell you for some solution in that field or this field because I'm an expert there, but there is like no list of all the solutions. So the Drawdown Project, what they did is that they, they ask uh, volunteer scientists to basically like uh, peer review uh, some of the solutions that were uh, put out there and come up with this list of 100 solutions. So if I could, was like queen, <laughs> I would just like take this uh, list and went through that and uh, implement it. But 
But I think that three things that are really key into solving climate change are transitioning out of the fossil fuel energy. Basically, our whole civilization is built around fossil fuel. That was the basis of the industrial revolution. And we know that is also uh, driving climate change. So one thing would be like to phase out as fast as possible from fossil fuel. And we have uh, the alternatives. We have solar, we have winds, uh, we have hydro. So that's something which is technically possible. The second one can is... I, can I yeah. throw a wrench in that mm-hmm. just really quickly? Because we're sticklers for details. And oftentimes people get glossy eyed when you're like, oh, solar. Mm. But to make solar and steel to encase it, you still mm. need to burn metallurgical coal. Mm. And so I just yeah. I just yeah. bring this up because I yeah. want to be that curmudgeonly yeah. voice that's like, you have to do full life cycle yeah. accounting on the carbon oh. inputs of these things that we're building. Yeah. So I absolutely uh, I absolutely agree with you that currently like building a solar panel or building like a wind turbine is like fossil fuel intensive. The thing is that at some point when we'd be like transitioning to a full solar, full clean and renewable energy, like building the stuff, we will not be using like fossil fuel. But I would say now we have to use the emission that we put in the atmosphere in the smartest way possible. So we have to burn fossil fuel because we are not a 100% clean and renewable uh, energy civilization. So let's do that to build the solar panel, to build those uh, wind turbine. And there is like, I mean, there is no way out of it uh, for now because we are not uh, 100% clean and renewable energy. Totally. Sorry. So I interrupted you. You were saying there are three things I got. With, I think we got through the first one. Yes. Uh, the second one is uh, something that everyone can do. It's basically transitioning to a plant-based diet. Uh, we know that the emission from the food industry, and you were like talking about the full life cycle. So I'm not like talking about like how you raise a beef, but like also how you, uh, the pesticide that are used, uh, the transportation for our, our food, make it like very intensive in terms, not only of fossil fuel, but only in methane. So like transitioning to a plant-based diet is like a must to reduce emission. And that's something like everyone can do. So if you want to act for climate, like just like reduce your intake of beef. Oh, you're lying such bait here because yeah. Nori straddles this line where we're, we try to be friendly with both people who do the holistic management, the, the savory style of uh, raising cattle and, and beef. And there is a way to raise cows. It doesn't have to be nearly as climate impactful, but most of the beef you're liable to eat is mm. not practiced this way. Mm. And then we also see like fights between vegans and then those people. Mm. And we're just sort of like, there's a sense in which both of you are right and both of mm. you are wrong. And, <laughs> and you both want the same thing which from the rancher perspective they want to farm cattle they want more people to eat grass-fed beef and they want to improve the health of the soil but feel attacked by people saying we must get off of a carnivorous diet and i just want to give a shout out to a group that we've been collaborating with and like to talk soil for climate with the number four check out their facebook group and join very lively debates that include diehards on both the left and the right and when i say left of the right i mean if <laughs> so vegans and ranchers v- vegans <laughs> vegans and ranchers and i'm not sure everyone would like that I, and i wrote it i wrote an article once which is like should we reduce our consumption of meat to reverse climate change the answer is yes and and so it's actually shifting from community 
uh, what, what is it? Uh, CAFOs. So that's the those are I think no concentrated what, agriculture sort feed, of the most feeding operations part of this. Yeah, they're they're super damaging. But then alternatively, we also hear arguments that's like, well, if you're going to a full plant based diet and it's factory farmed soybeans, this is a problem too. So. It's, it's really important. I'm all for it. I also just had an Impossible Burger, the Impossible 2.0. Yeah. Like that totally tastes like meat. Paul loves them too. Yeah, Paul's they're a good. Everyone should go out and have them. And I'd feel good about myself because I'm like, I know that this is better than the other beef burger that I'm going to eat. Like, How annoyingly nuanced was that? <laughs> did, it, did it help us? Did it oh. confuse us for further? But, uh, but I do want to be that pushback because I'm concerned that if you say eat less meat is the answer, that it can gloss over details. And so I'd like to say if you're going to eat meat, be smarter about where the meat comes from that you ate. And on net, it is possible that someone could eat more meat. I just want to lay out the situation. It's someone that could eat more regenerative meat that results in a net carbon sequestration sink. Oh, and yeah, I get your point absolutely that uh, depending on the type of like grazing uh, technique, because you and I'm not an expert, uh, so I would probably get uh, that wrong, that the soil where your cattle uh, graze, if they graze according to some kind of method, will sequester more carbon. So I, I agree with you that it's always like more nuanced, like exactly the same when you said, okay, like eat a more plant-based diet. But if you are eating, I don't know, like avocado that are coming from, I don't know, in Mexico and, and they are like grown with pesticides and with fossil fuel materials and everything. And then the transportation, yeah, maybe you are like better off like eating. Like your local cow. Yeah. <laughs> which is grazing. So yeah, obviously that's, there is more nuance that what we are saying, but you have to start somewhere. Maybe the really pedantic way of saying it is consume food in a way that reduces the carbon footprint of that food. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll agree there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's like a fair, a fair principle. So take us to number three. Yeah. So number three is basically like increase the uh, potential of carbon sequestration that we have in nature, which is basically trees like reforestation, afforestation, the mangrove, also like what we call like the blue carbon is like a huge potential for uh, carbon sequestration and like soil sequestration. So that would be like the third thing that I think is needed and that we need to see because that's one of the most cost effective thing that we have to reduce our emission and also to suck some of the emission from the atmosphere. One of the things that I like about mangroves is <laughs> such a great, great little sentence there. Continue. Out of many. <laughs> they're, they're amazing carbon sinks. They're much more effective on sort of bang per buck than trees. Yes. Um, but one of the challenges, of course, is, well, among the many, they're under attack from acidifying waters and rising sea levels. And touristry that just says we want to develop this waterfront because waterfront is desirable and it takes a really long time to build mm. up all this carbon and then mm. you can just go poof mm. so we're keen because mangroves mm. can remove carbon they can also mm. store carbon mm. but i i think the thing that i really like about it it's sort of like they're they're the like the ends of the water mm. uh, tolkien reference <laughs> i've been listening to uh the great courses is is awesome if you like listening to books great courses has professors on all on so many topics but i've listened to their botany one i listened to one on mangroves recently and apparently when they they like they seed and they and they reproduce they come out as seedlings it's not like they like land and then they germinate because they can't because it's in tidal waters so they have to come out like ready to go mm -hmm. and it's like one of the unique things about them 
So that's all I'll say about mangroves for now. <laughs> we should keep it moving, though. Get, get us to the meat, Kristoff. There's, there's a real juicy lead that we buried on this whole podcast. We buried it so hard. This is historic because we're going to be talking about something that is going to happen in the future. And you, listener, are going to help make it happen in the future. So... That sounded, sounded threatening, but yeah. no, but but it should. And but why? Why, why but should? should. Wh- like, what? What are we even talking about, Ellen? What was? What was the lead here that we had buried? And why should it happen? Um, yeah. Well, I think that just to build it on on what you were thinking about the uh, mangrove or the diet, that there is still so much that we need to know. There is like so much that climate change should really like permeate every area of our life, of the way we are thinking as a society. And we're just like not seeing that right now. And we think that we should put climate change even more front and center. And one way to do that, and it's one way among all of many would be to have an award that really put climate change front and center. And I mean, the most prestigious award of all are a Nobel Prize. So we think that it's time to have climate change and uh, more precisely action against climate change as one of the new category of the uh, climate prizes. Amazing. Big round of applause. I mean, already, you know, we do see economics awards that relate to climate change and talk about it. So it's Mm -hmm. nice that... This broad multidisciplinary sector sort of influences those, but why does it need to be its own category? For many different reasons. Like, as you said, uh, we saw last year with William Northout that economic work on climate change uh, were rewarded. The last time uh, it was rewarded, it was in 2007 with the uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, given to Al Gore and the IPCC. So basically, we waited like 11 years because there is so much focus the Nobel committees can put on climate change within the current uh, six category. And that's something, a topic that we should discuss about like every year. That's one reason why we need a category of its own. The other reason why we think a Nobel Prize would make a lot of sense is that that would also show what are the world's priority. This is the most prestigious award. And we know that climate change is the most pressing issues. So we need to distinguish people who are basically trailblazer in reducing carbon emission or trying to adapt. They should be rewarded with the highest uh, distinction. Another way we think that climate novel will make a lot of sense is that we would be able to like reshape the conversation around action. In 2007, when the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded, it was all about saying to the IPCC and, and Al Gore, good job, you lay down the foundation for us now to act. We're 11 years later and the conversation is still many levels stuck about like, is it a man-made climate change cycle? Uh, there's kind of like a, a lot of noise, which is done on purpose by very few people and we have to cut through that noise and we think that a Nobel Climate Prize uh, focusing on action will help with that. Another thing that we need uh, role models and Climate Nobel laureates can be one of those role models. I mean, I'm sure you've seen what is happening in Europe, in Australia, with the youth movement that has been built around Greta Thunberg, this uh, Swedish young girl, which basically started a climate strike in front of the Swedish parliament. And now it's has, uh, morphed into a worldwide youth movement because the students and the young people saw that 
this is something that can be done. There was like someone, Greta Thunberg, showing them that they have more power than they think. And so we really, really want to highlight all those great uh, climate champions. And there are like so many, like I can uh, mention one, like Mr. Yakuba Sawaga from Burkina Faso, who is led the uh, movement in agroforestry in Burkina Faso in the 80s and 90s and show what benefit not only for farmers, but in terms of like sequestering carbon agroforestry can, can do. So I think did that uh, also like prevent the desert from spreading uh, to exactly. Oh yeah, I've seen this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, planted so many trees. It's incredible. It's really yeah. it's kind of like the impact of one person and to inspire others. Yeah, exactly. So we think that uh having role models and highlighting them can really inspire people uh, in a hopeful way. The Nobel Prizes are just like a great way, a great avenue for doing that. Do you think that people watching you do this that care more about inequality than climate change are like, hey, so why not, why not inequality? Why is, should there be like climate change or uh, Nobel Prizes for various types of issues? Or is it is climate change so unique that we should have one specifically for it? You could argue that climate change is driving more inequality. So this and is like the mother issue. I do think so. I think if you look back at why Alfred Nobel created the Nobel Prizes, what did he say in his will? He said, you know, the Nobel Prizes would be awarded to people who brought the greatest benefit to mankind. Climate change was not an issue in the late 1800s. And so it was not one of the five founding, you know, disciplines for the Nobel Prizes. I think if the prize were to be created today, it is likely that climate change would be one of them because it is one of the greatest threat to humankind, it is driving uh, more poverty, more inequality, and we need to um, do something uh, about this now, I guess. And it's not like we aren't, but we're not doing enough at the ambition needed in the amount of time that we have to do it. And one of the things that I like about prizes is they become pretty good motivator for someone's like, oh, I'm going to do this because this prize exists. But I want to play devil's advocate against that. Like, did Barack Obama, who was awarded the Peace Prize, do it because he's like, I'm going to get the Nobel Peace Prize? Or did he just do that thing because I'm that's not even the clear right. that he deserved it? What exactly did he even right. do? Did he deserve it? Or like, could this just become a political thing? Could this get distorted in some way? Will it actually help? I'm just, we're playing hardball now. Like, further convince us that people who are already doing the right thing really can benefit from a prize and this prize will motivate people. Is there a financial incentive here? Like what, how does this yeah. help people? So I don't think that people who get a Nobel Prize are doing the work that they are doing because there is a Nobel Prize. I don't think that a doctor that have been working all, all his life to try to find a cure to AIDS, for instance, uh, would have not done that if there was no uh, Nobel Prizes. So even though there is financial dotation, so there is a $1 million going with uh, each prizes, I don't think that people are doing that for that. But the beauty of the Nobel Prizes is that it's inspirational for people to see those people that uh, raise above all other to show the way. And I think that what's needed with climate change in that we need to show people that this is an issue which is solvable. This is something that people are working on very hard, that there is a solution to it. So that 
can generate uh, enthusiasm, enthusiasm and hope around solving climate change. I think the paradox here is like mm -hmm. the, the creation of the you know, climate change uh, Nobel Prize is not for primarily for the people who are making actions against climate change now. It is more to raise awareness globally. Nobel Prizes are the most recognizable, respected awards worldwide. Every year when they announce the Nobel Prize in October, every day a new prize, it, it has a full price cycle globally. Again, there's no discussion about uh, all those people should not have had the Nobel Prizes. It's more about Here's what, what's great about the physics that was done last year, and this is the Nobel Prize. We want the same thing to happen for climate change. Here are the great actions that were driven last year, and, and let's talk about those. And giving that kind of visibility worldwide with such a respected prize as, as the Nobels is what we want to achieve. And how's that all going? Are you, how much are you even able to say, but are you meeting with these people with the Nobel Committee or Institute, or I'm not even sure how this is structured? And what can our listeners do to move this effort along? So what we are doing is we have an online petition and we need that number to be as high as possible. We, you know, we aim for 1 million signatures and what we need is more signatures. And signing this, sharing this with your friends, your communities, your locally, uh, internationally, that's the main thing. You know, armed with your voices and your signatures, then that will give us the right visibility and will allow us to make it happen. But first, it starts with we need support. You know, we have translated a petition in a dozen languages. We have people from the five continents who've signed the petition, but now we need greater numbers. That's that's the main thing. Okay, and then. Are you trying to work inside without the petition? Are you talking to people over there? Did you purposefully dodge this question? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so we did inform the uh, Nobel Foundation about the campaign. We informed the executive director and the chairman of the board because it's not something that we want uh, to do against us, uh, against them, sorry. And so they are aware of the campaign, obviously, where the company is like small enough that they didn't answer us yet. But as the further we grow in a number of signatures, the easier it would be to open this uh, dialogue and to convince them to consider the creation of such a prize. Because like the board of the Nobel Foundation has the power to administer a new prize. So in his will, Alfred Nobel only created five prizes and uh, there is actually six prizes currently. The five original prizes were uh, medicine and physiology, physics, chemistry, peace and literature. And in 1968, the Central Bank of Sweden came to the Nobel Foundation and asked them to administer a new prize. And the full title of the prize is the uh, prize of the um, Central Bank of Sweden uh, in economic science in memory of Alfred Nobel. But everyone knows it as the Nobel Prize in economic science because it's administered by the Nobel Foundation. There is a Nobel Committee for the selection. It's awarded along the other prizes. And so... The Nobel Foundation accepted to do that once, even though in 1969, they decided not to accept new prize. But that's only like a decision of the board. Like 50 years later, I think they can reopen the discussion to update the list of the category that they have. I'm so curious about the, the politics of how to accept one prize and then cut it off. <laughs> okay, if someone wants to learn more, though, how can they find uh, this petition? Where might they, they get it? 
Yeah, so the easiest way would be to go on the uh, change.org website or like following the tiny URL that we created, like www.tinyurl.com slash climate noble. And you'll find uh, not only you'll be able to sign the petition and share it, but you also have the link to all the other platform that we have, the Facebook group, as well as the dedicated website. We have a FAQ on this dedicated website answering all the questions. And obviously, like if you have like more questions or want to learn more or like volunteer to help support the uh, the petition, you can just send us an email and we'll uh, respond to you in, uh, in a day or two. Well, one thing I think that is cool about this opportunity, if you're out there listening and you think this is interesting, is that, well, I, I could sometimes be a little bit down on, on activism or a little bit critical, mm-hmm. like symbolism doesn't always do as much for me as maybe it does for mm-hmm. others. But if you could help nudge uh, the creation of a climate uh, Nobel that's a pretty big deal. Like I would, and also um, it isn't nearly as prickly as policy where you could put yourself, interject yourself into that system and suggest some policy changes that have complex consequences that are unforeseeable now that you may have on your shoulders for advocating. So like, I, I think this is like, if you like this idea, like I think it's, I think there's a chance to do something. I'm, I'm saying this this badly. Right. A, a flood begins with rain. I think it's like to the point of we have, uh, dare I call them stodgy people running a foundation that they I'm not responding to this email but suddenly if there's so many people who demand it it's impossible not to and there's a movement and you're basically saying let's set a goal let's use this prize as a platform to basically accelerate these solutions which are out there but aren't able to leverage into these things and you know what who could say no to that who could say like that I, I mean I signed the petition and I encourage everyone to do so and I encourage especially people who work with kids like get the kids to sign the petition get them out there get them saying like we're looking for little things that we can grasp onto to sort of create this force from all different directions where climate change solutions just become unstoppable wow that was a much better closing summation than my meandering nonsense so good good for you Christoph. uh helen and raul thank you so much for being with us um we'll have links in the show notes if you'd like if you like the show please give us a great rating and review on itunes share this content help the world find out about reversing climate change the climate nobel etc we also have another podcast called carbon removal newsroom which you heard about at the top of the show so please do the same for that if you enjoy it and thank you so much for being here Uh, thank you so much for having us thank you